Father, we have come today to proclaim that Christ is risen. May that truth live in us. May we live in that truth. In the name of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen. Some of you may find this hard to believe, but I was always a good boy. You ask my mother, she'll tell you. Don't ask my sisters, that's a whole other story. But you ask my mother, she'll tell you. I was always a good boy. I think some of it was because I was just so timid as a child that I was too afraid to get into trouble, too afraid to do anything bad. But um, when I was in school, I think all of my teachers would have said, he's a good boy. I don't remember getting any conduct marks on my report card except one time. And that was because I just happened to be a part of the um, unfortunate cracker incident in the cafeteria, we were, you know, sliding those crackers in plastic bags, little plastic things up in there, cellophane things up and down the table, smashing it as we went along. And I don't know, it made the monitor upset and gave us all attendance marks. And I was pretty much scarred for a long time, but I got through that. Uh, it was my only mark, you know, but that was a tough one. But, you know, I was a pretty good boy. I remember in sixth grade, I was in uh, honors chorus, and, you know, we were... We were meeting for regular class one day, and all of us in a couple of lines, sitting and singing in front of the teacher who was at the piano, you know, make from here to the front of that row. And uh, in the midst of that, the teacher asked the guy sitting next to me to go get the maracas. He was going to play them for the next song. Isn't it weird how you remember random things like that? In fact, I was just thinking, I'm pretty sure his name was Tim Womack. How would I, I don't, you know, I never talked to him after that. After the year we were done, he was a couple years ahead of me in school. Anyway, he went to get the maracas, and he came back, and I don't know why. I don't, I don't know what came over me. I don't know. I, I still to this day don't understand it. But when he bent to sit down, I pulled his chair out from under him. <laughs> Bam, right on the floor. I don't remember what he said. Probably, that's probably a good thing. Um, I do remember that he whacked me on the head a few times with the maracas, hence probably why I remember the maracas. And... He, I, I, I looked up, and there's the teacher. She's standing at the piano. I can see her now with her hands on the piano, looking at me, her eyes this wide, her mouth wide open, not knowing what to say. The good boy just pulled the chair out from underneath this kid. And, and she looked at me for a few minutes, and it seemed like an eternity, I think, and I just sat there like, okay. And she said, Wes, I can't believe you did that. Shame on you. Now, then she started to make sure my former friend was okay. But the hard part, too, was that my sister was in the chorus. So you can imagine who ratted me out when we got home from school that day. I don't remember what my parents said. I don't remember how they reacted to that. But I will never forget that teacher looking at me and saying, just shocked look on her face. And I think extremely disappointed in this good boy, and saying, shame on you, shame on you. In a far more significant, certainly far more important way, as you get to the end of this section of Scripture we read today, this is what Paul says to the Corinthians. It's a message he wants to get across to them. He says, shame on you. 
Shame on you for denying the resurrection. Shame on you for forgetting all the things that I taught you, for all the things that you said you received. Shame on you. After all that I've done to teach you, after all that I've, I've given of myself to you to help you understand, many of you are denying the resurrection of the dead. And, and you don't realize that in denying the resurrection of the dead, you're also denying the resurrection of Christ. Because if the dead are not raised, then how in the world can Christ be raised? And if Christ is not raised, then everything we've ever believed, the foundation of all that we are as Christians, is a lie. The tomb isn't empty if Jesus isn't raised. Paul spends the first 28 verses of this chapter describing and trying to help the the Christians in Corinth to to remember what he's been teaching them. He spends this time talking to them about the fact that Jesus appeared to so many people in so many different places. He talks to them about even seeing Jesus himself, trying to to inspire in them a, a a new and a renewed understanding and belief about the resurrection of the dead. And I get the sense that when you get to the end of verse 28, into that paragraph, I, I can almost picture Paul stopping for a moment and thinking to himself, I'm not sure they're going to get it. I'm not sure. I've, I mean, yeah, I've made some great arguments. I, I've, I've been logical with them, but what they're doing seems beyond logic. It, it, I need to find a way that I can, I can tap into their experience, help them feel this. And, and, and I can see Paul sitting and pondering and pacing and pondering and trying to think how he can express himself and help them to see this in a way that, that will make sense to them and will grab them. And then it comes to him. And, and in verse 29, he says... Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And, you know, Paul is saying in essence, look, guys, think about something for a moment. The very people who are trying to convince you that there is no bodily resurrection are the same people who are telling you, that we ought to be baptizing people for the dead. Well, if they don't believe in the bodily resurrection, what would be the need to baptize people for the dead? And and I can sense Paul saying, that's it. And, And in his context, it makes perfect sense. It's a wonderful argument. In our context, it's kind of confusing. And the confusion is not that there would be people in Corinth who might practice baptism for the dead. The confusing thing is that they would practice this and Paul wouldn't condemn it when he has a chance. This this baptism for the dead is only mentioned a a very few times in in Scripture, well, not in Scripture at all, except for here, but in church history. And it's connected each of those very few times with heresies. And, And there's no doubt that baptism for the dead is not a part of Orthodox Christianity. And we read this and we wonder, how in the world can Paul speak of it so calmly and without judgment when it's something that obviously is not right? 
And they oughtn't be doing it. Now, I think we need to keep in mind that Paul's not condoning this practice. In fact, you might see a little bit of a subtle message between verses 29 and 30. In 29, when he's talking about baptism for the dead, he words it in third person. What will those do who are baptized for the dead? Why are people baptized for them? And then in verse 30, when he speaks about suffering experiences, the pronouns move to first person. And for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? And I don't think the difference in the pronouns is insignificant. But still, you read that and you say, that's pretty subtle. Wouldn't he, shouldn't he say something a lot more direct about this practice? I think Paul doesn't say anything about it because he realizes that the moment he makes a negative statement about baptism for the dead, the attention of his readers is going to be on wanting to argue about that practice instead of wanting to, instead of thinking about his central point, which is resurrection of the dead. Paul's not stupid. He knows how people think. He knows that if he raises, if he, if he argues with something that people feel is right, that's the place they're going to go, and they're going to miss the bigger, bigger point that he's trying to make. And if he wants to get the Corinthians to, to see the logic in the hypocrisy of what these people are saying and doing, he's got to ignore that practice. Suppose that Paul did go ahead and condemn it. It might sound something like this. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are involved with this pagan practice of baptism for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them, particularly when this practice is completely incompatible with we, what we believe as followers of Jesus? If he says it like that, what do you think the conversation is going to be about? Baptism of the dead. They're going to want to argue about that, and they're going to miss Paul's bigger point. And to a certain degree, I think if, when we read this kind of a passage, it's exactly what we do. We read this, and, and our primary question might be, what does baptism for the dead mean? We've got to figure that out. And we miss the whole point of resurrection of the dead. But having said that, we've got to keep in mind that the central message in these verses is the shame that the people ought to feel as they waver about the resurrection of the dead. That they're damaging the truth of Jesus Christ. They're undermining the foundation of faith in Christ. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then there's no resurrection of Christ. And that undercuts everything, including the call that God makes upon his followers to sacrifice ourselves for Christ. If there is no resurrection of the dead and no resurrection of Christ, that call to sacrifice for Christ, it's foolish. Paul writes in verses 30 and 31, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In 32, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection of the dead, why would we, why would we think about things like righteousness and sacrifice and humility? If there's no resurrection, none of that stuff makes any sense. 
If Christ is not raised, and if we aren't going to be raised from life to death, then really the philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry, makes perfect sense. That's what everybody else does. Just grab everything of life that we can. If there's no resurrection, what in the world is the point of giving up anything for Christ? I suspect this is why Paul connects hesitancy about the the resurrection, denial of the resurrection with sin. In verse 34, he, he says to the Corinthians, come back to your senses and stop sinning. Their denial of the resurrection is sin because it's, it's damaging their relationship with God. It's undercutting the foundations of what it means to have a relationship with God. And even if these folks aren't outright denying the resurrection of the body, there's no doubt they are wavering about it. And their wavering is undermining their confidence in God. Their confidence in God is weak and and it's causing them to doubt and to fear. And they live under the threat of death as the final word. If it's Paul's confidence in God through the resurrection that gives Paul strength and courage to stand up against the most difficult attacks of the enemy, then the opposite must also be true. Their lack of confidence in God because they're wavering about the resurrection makes them vulnerable to the attacks of the evil one. And while Paul lives victoriously, they live in failure. As Paul stands tall against the attacks of the, of the world, they crumble against the winds of culture and, and pain and opposition. As Paul's life is absorbed in the holiness of Christ's resurrection grace, their lives are absorbed in gratification of self's fleeting pleasures. Now, I realize that probably few of us come today thinking, I don't really believe in the resurrection. But are we living as though we really believe it? When I see my own instinct and, and, and the instincts of many others to think about that we bring about change on earth, by getting connected to the right people and the right institutions who have power on earth, is it a subtle sign that maybe our, our confidence in the resurrection isn't as strong as it should be? When despite what we claim with our mouths, we act as though the real power for change is in places like Washington or Ottawa or Beijing or London or Geneva, then isn't it a subtle sign that maybe we are wavering? on the resurrection of the dead. That doesn't mean that that we aren't involved in the things that are going on in this world, and we'll talk about that more in in the next couple of weeks. But what's underlying that? Is our confidence, is our hope in these earthly powers? Do we sometimes say, if anything's going to be different about this world, it's going to have to come through the power brokers of the world? Our most effective strategy is to fight for power and to work for power and to lobby for power because in this world, that's the way you get things done. What does that attitude tell us about our confidence in the resurrected Christ? What does our our sense of living with hopelessness and despair about the world tell us 
about what we really believe concerning the resurrection. Our, our world is corrupted by sin at every level. And sometimes it feels as though everything's coming apart at the seams. But shouldn't our belief about the resurrection give us a new perspective on what's happening in the world? And it's not that we ignore the problems of the world. In fact, no one should be, should be more able and willing to honestly address and name the problems of the world because we aren't afraid of those problems. Because our confidence is not in the stuff of this world. It's in the risen Christ. And yes, the world's a mess and the world's in trouble and things feel out of control. But if we believe in the resurrection, we always live with a sense of hope. Because God is at work. God is in control. And one day, God is going to make all things new through the resurrected Christ. This is why we live with hope and optimism and joy. This is why we live with a sense of sacrifice for the kingdom of God. I'm intrigued that Paul writes in verse 31, I die every day. And I ask myself, how do you die every day? You know, he's not talking literally. But even, even in your spirit, how do you die every day? Human logic tells us that a person can only die once unless there's resurrection. And we tend to see resurrection as a one-time event that is only connected with the hereafter, and it certainly is that. But I hear Paul telling us that it's also a daily event. We're called to die every day, to give up ourselves in every possible way. And how do we do that? We do it Because in Christ, there is life after death. In Christ, death is not the end. In Christ, resurrection is not just about heaven, though it is that. But it's also about power to live in this world. And power to die in this world. To die to our dreams and and to our yearnings. To die to our need to control. To die to ourselves. Because we believe that though we die, even daily, in the resurrected Christ, we live. And surrendering our timetable and our plans to God is really a major element of, of our declaration that we believe in the resurrection. It's our unbelief in the resurrection that causes us to fear letting God have our lives. It's our hesitancy about the resurrection that makes us hesitant to relinquish absolute control of our lives to God. So if we are unwilling to die, as Paul says, every day, what does that say about our belief in the resurrection? I think one of the, one of the struggles that we have in, in living this way is that you know, we're existing between the now and the not yet. That's a hard place to be. In verses 24 to 28, Paul speaks about God destroying all dominion, authority, and power of of Christ, putting all of his enemies under his feet, of declaring that death is a defeated foe. I think about those pictures. And when I imagine Christ putting all enemies under his feet, I imagine a, a, 
a warrior in battle, hand-to-hand combat with swords clanging and clashing until you are able to, to knock the sword out of your enemy's hand and drop them to the ground. And you step up and you place your boot on their neck. And you may not end their life in that moment, but the battle is over. When you think of of death being destroyed, it's finished. It no longer has control over us. And we rejoice in this, but notice all the pronouns or all the uh, verbs are are future tense. It means that our ability to see the truth of all that God has done and God's power is limited right now. It doesn't mean that God's authority is in question. Christ has already won. The outcome is no longer in doubt. But the full result of Christ's victory are yet to come. And we still face the threat of death in this world. We still incur temptation and difficulty and struggle that threatens to undo us. But it's not because God's power and authority is in question. Christ is risen. The battle is won. God reigns. And I suspect that the problem the Corinthians have and the problem we have is living in that in-between. Because when we look around at our world and we know with our minds that, that God is in control and that God has won and everything is in His hands, but sometimes it's hard because it still looks to us as though Caesar has control. It still looks to us as though the world's in quite a mess. And God isn't exercising the kind of authority and power that we want him to. And our impatience leads to doubt and wavering. And Paul is calling us back to the truth. But their wavering about the resurrection is not just about their own walk with God. It's about the witness of, of two other people who don't know God. The last phrase of verse 34 says, For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. And it's interpreted by scholars two ways. Some believe that he's talking about the, the people in Corinth who are leading the rest of them astray. They're ignorant about God and about the things of God. Others believe he's talking about the pagans who live around them who don't know anything about God. And you can make a case for either one. It seems to me that that the Thinking about the pagans outside of the church makes more sense. The people are watching us. And people are learning about God from God's people. What is it that people see in us that causes them to view the world and the circumstances of the world differently than the pagan temple down the street? than the the philosophers teaching in the marketplace. I can hear Paul saying to them and to us, shame on you for causing these people to think that that Christian resurrection is no different than pagan resurrection. Shame on you that your view of resurrection is no different from everybody else's view of resurrection. Why be ashamed of belittling God like that? No wonder Paul calls it sin. 
In the Christianity Today article a few years ago, Chuck Colson was talking about uh, David Jenkins, who had been recently appointed an Anglican bishop in England. And Jenkins announced that his, uh, when they appointed him, announced his appointment, he announced to, to the secular press that the resurrection was merely a conjuring trick with bones. It's a conjuring trick with bones, and they all had a good laugh about it. Most of the evangelicals cringed and hoped that it would just go away, and it did. But it was only a, a few months later that Colson was in Sri Lanka, and he was talking with some of the church leaders there, and he asked them about how the church was doing, and they said, we're having a struggle right, right now. We're, we are losing badly to the Muslims, and it all started with that Jenkins thing. Because the Muslims come to the Christians and say, well, I understand that you don't believe in the resurrection anymore. And so if Christ hasn't been raised, then you see him as a prophet just as we do. So why don't we just come together and worship at the mosque? You just come with us because we see Christ the same way you do now. And this church leader said that they are killing us with our own words. I don't think any of us see the resurrection as a conjuring trick of bones. But is it possible that what we're communicating about the resurrection and the power of the resurrection in our lives and in this world is sending others a warped image of God? Our fears, the way we, the way we see the world changing, the way we see things happening in the world, is it all about the powers of the world? Or is it about trusting the resurrected Christ? Letting Christ set our agenda instead of others. Realizing that the real power in this world is not in any of the governments or any of the wealthy people. It's in the risen Christ who has promised that all of his children will one day rise with him. At some point, if we're resurrection people, shouldn't we act like it? I love the way Eugene Peterson phrases verse 32 in the message. He says, it's resurrection, resurrection, always resurrection that undergirds what I do and say and the way I live. It's resurrection, resurrection, always resurrection. Paul's declaration is clear. Christ is raised. Now, live like you believe it. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are here today because Christ lives. We celebrate the promise of life after death with you because Christ lives. Help us to grasp more fully the importance of the resurrection for our world and for our lives. Help us to see life and, and life's events from a resurrection perspective. May the resurrection power come upon all of us today.
Father, we thank you that you hear us when we pray. And this morning, we pray for those among us who are in need. We pray for your resurrection healing power for Roland Fletcher and Al Smith, for Jessica Jarvis and John Johnson and Isabel Alexander, for Pierce Samuels and Emily Crickler and Tom Fuco, and for Lillian Gordon and Richard Schmidt and Louis Case, and for all others whom we know are ill. We pray for your resurrection comfort for all who grieve today. We pray that you would supply employment for all who are seeking it. And that you would supply miraculously in the interim. May your resurrection hope fill all who despair. And your resurrection joy be given to all who live under the weight of life's heaviest burdens. Heavenly Father, let the resurrection presence of Christ be unleashed on our world so that even the most ungodly leaders might see that ultimately all power is in your hands. And may this revelation cause closed hearts to be opened and justice to roll down like mighty waters in our cruel, violent, chaotic world. We thank you for the good news that the Kisar translations have arrived safely in Kupang. We pray that you would guide them on to Kisar, even as the enemy works to prevent it. Fill John and Sylvia with joy and gratitude of what you have done and what you have helped them to do. May your word go forth with power among the Kisar people. Father, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Let the truth and the reality and the power of the resurrected Christ be the purpose and the motivation of our lives this day and every day. For it's in the name of our risen Savior that we pray with the joy and confidence of resurrection people. Remembering the prayer of faith and power that he taught us and which we now pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 